Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. As we sit down and explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone. As he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with MLB All-Star and Mariners Hall of Famer, Dan Wilson. Baseball stuff! Baseball stuff! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by another one of my favorite teammates. He played in the big leagues for 14 years and was an all-star in 1996. And in 2012, he was inducted into the Mariners Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Wilson. Dano, thanks for coming on the program. Boone, it's always a pleasure. Great (laughs) catching up with you. And uh, for those of you tuning into the Boone Podcast, if I reference Dan as Steel, uh, that's because we call him Dan of Steel. He's had that nickname long before uh, I came back to Seattle the second time. But so, so I, I don't want to leave you guys out of the loop. That's what it means. If I if I just incoherently say, "All right, Steel, we're moving on to the next subject." Anyway, we got that out of the way. Nineteen ninety three. Who got the better? Tra- who got the better trade? <laughs> Right on the spot. Dan and myself Uh, were traded for each other. 1993. uh, He came from the Reds. I went to the Reds. He came to the Seattle Mariners and and, uh, played out the rest of his career there. Um, But but in a serious, uh, you know, I I laugh when I say who got the who got the better of the trade. Um, That's something funny for us to banter about. But as young players. I can speak for myself. I want to hear your, hear your story about it. Uh, Dan and myself had, had played together briefly in a summer uh, when we were in college, uh, the USA team. But I remember I'm a young player coming up. Uh, man, Lou Pinella is just as hard on me as anybody. You had a little bit of Lou in Cincinnati before he came to Seattle. And I had just finally had a really good second half in 1993. Lou and myself were on good terms. He told me, Booney, you're going to be my second baseman for the next 15 years. A couple weeks later, I get a phone call and it's, and it's Lou saying, son, we traded you to the Cincinnati Reds. My first reaction, I wasn't, uh, you know, I, I didn't get down like, oh, the Mariners don't want me. No, I looked at it as the Reds want me. And and they need a young catcher. I knew that, you know, the business side of it. Dave Valley was uh, finishing out his tenure and we had a plethora of young middle infielders in Seattle. So it made sense business wise. But I'm telling you, the first thing that went through my brain is, man, that was a tough year. I finally kind of established myself from Lou. I'm Lou's guy now. I'm going to Davey Johnson. I don't know this guy. I don't know these. I've got to do it all over again. That's all <laughs> I could think about when I got traded. All right. I want to hear your version. Well, it was uh, a little bit different because I had made the team in Cincinnati out of spring training in 93, but was not playing much. Joe Oliver was the everyday guy and Joe caught every day. Uh, he was a guy that was just a stalwart back there and he was in there every day. So I was playing, I was going up and down and went to Indianapolis for a a uh, couple, two, three months, came back to Cincinnati um, at the end uh, in, in September. Uh, so the idea was because I didn't have a lot of at-bats, I was going to go down and play winter ball down in Puerto Rico. Um, I'm in the hotel in Puerto Rico. My wife calls me and says, <laughs> check the ticker. I think you got traded. <laughs> 
So uh, I had not heard from anybody yet. And sure enough, uh, you know, eventually it came out that, that I had been traded to, to Seattle. Um, and I think for me, Brett, I think I felt very, very similarly. Um, I think I knew that Dave Valley was leaving. I had Lou in Cincinnati, like you mentioned. So I knew what I was getting into. I knew some of the coaching staff even. So it was, there was some familiarity there for me. Um, but the, and I knew Dave Valley was leaving. It was going to be an opportunity for me to play as a young player. And that's what you, that's what you hope for is an opportunity to play as a young player. But I got it. You know, it always does creep in that feeling of, well, the Reds don't want you anymore. And that's always a little tough to swallow, but knowing what was ahead, you just kind of, you know, turn your attention to that. And it ended up working out great for you. You played there a lot of, a lot of years, had a lot of success in, in Seattle and still to this day, uh, with the Seattle Mariners loved in that city. Um, it's not often I get a catcher on here. I want to talk a little bit about the 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 uh, your long career catching. My the time I was with you, uh, and and did appreciate that. But but it came from a father that was this pretty similar player to Dan Wilson. That kind of you didn't get the credit that that you deserved. Um, and not not I, I don't even mean to put it that way. Kind of an unsung hero type position. Uh, the older I get, the more I get away from the game, the more I watch the game, how important that is to have a really good catcher back there. And not only from a defensive throw the runner out. No, that's the least uh, that I'm talking about. I'm talking about that frame of mind that a pitching staff comes to the ballpark with saying, wow, I'm glad Danny's back there or whoever their catcher is at the time. The, being comfortable with your partner, uh, so huge for a pitching staff, it makes the complete difference. You know, it's almost like me playing with a shortstop. That's an A-ball shortstop. I can't play my game. I can't try to make great plays because I don't trust him. And it's like, oh, you know, I, I had an instance to get the, the gentleman will go unnamed at a certain point in my career where it was just really tough to work with him. Um, but but having that coherent, uh, I don't know, that relationship, it, it's so good for a pitching staff. Uh, I don't know. I, I kind of want me to you to give me your version of what it's like back there, because I know a lot of pitchers have come to me and go, you know, I don't have my great stuff. Uh, but, but Danny helped me get through today. That's got to be kind of a self-fulfilling thing when you're done going, hey, maybe I got a hit, maybe I hit a homer, but I'll tell you what, we got the win and he had nothing today and we got through that as, as a team. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things I get to, a chance to do and I'm grateful to the Mariners, but first of all, let me say, for you to say that about me and your dad, that's an incredible compliment because your dad was an incredible catcher and someone that I looked up to tremendously. Uh, what a tremendous career. Um, but... I, I get a chance for Seattle now to, to sort of work with some of the young catchers. We do a lot of talking about that pitcher catcher relationship. And that is everything. We talk about words like trust. Um, you know, the pitcher has to trust the catcher, trust him, you know, in a lot of different areas. He has to trust him that uh, he's, he's done his homework, uh, that he knows that the lineup, uh, that he knows the, the pitcher's strengths, uh, what the guy he's, that he's got on the mound, he, he knows him well enough to know what he could use to get guys out. He needs to trust him that with a guy on third base and he's going to throw his nasty slider, that it's not going to go to the backstop. Um, that's another level of trust. So um, I think as as catchers, we have to develop that trust in our guys um, because that really is the basis for everything. And, and you know, that relationship that you mentioned between a pitcher and a catcher, 
Um, we talk to our minor league catchers a lot. It, it's not just at the ballpark. You know, there's, there's uh, in Seattle, you, you spend a lot of time on an airplane. It's, it's spending some time on an airplane, spending some time in a hotel, going out to dinner, uh, developing and understanding each other as people uh, because, you know, uh, it, 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 that relationship between a pitcher and a catcher has to extend beyond just, uh, you know, throw a slider here, throw a fastball here. We have to know each other pretty, pretty well. And, and uh, you know, I've, I've had the luxury or had the luxury of catching a lot of great pitchers over the years and, and developing that trust and developing that relationship means everything uh, when it comes to calling the game. Because the only thing, you know, I talk about uh, playing second base and the shortstops I had over the year. The the only shortstop I had for a real extended period for five years in Cincinnati was Barry Larkin. And it was, and, it, you know, it sounds silly, and I, I don't get, to, I don't like to get too weird about the relationship, but it was if we kind of could read one another's mind. I mean, when I would make a play in the hole, I could come up, pivot, fire, and whether I made a good throw or a bad throw, Barry would make it look like a good throw. And it gave me the freedom to to take a chance because I trusted my partner and vice versa. And it just seemed like whatever we did, we got the job done. And we'd kind of look at each other sometimes like, how'd you know I'd be there? I, I don't know. I just did. Did you have any guys that you were that way with where, where you just put it down and he's already signaling like, yeah, of course, Danny, you know, I'm going to throw that pitch. Yeah, I think I, 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 that can happen with any of your of, of your pitching staff, and I think that's the beauty of it. Um, there are times when you're so in sync with guys that uh, I, I know what he wants, and he knows that I'm going to put down what he wants even before it happens, and and you're just in a flow, like you mentioned, and it, that's that's the ultimate. And I think about guys like Jamie Moyer, a guy who I caught for a long time here in Seattle, ten ten years or so, but. Um, Jamie was a very different type of pitcher. He was, you know, he had a lot of, he had to have a lot of feel. He had the great change up, uh, but very easy to catch from a physical standpoint, very easy to catch. There, there wasn't a lot physically that needed to happen, but it was all, uh, you know, how are we going to set this guy up? What's, what are Jamie's good pitches that day? Is his change up, you know, is it running like it should? Um, and the ability for he and I to kind of, uh, sync up w- was huge, and and the, and then to see what adjustments we needed to make as the game went on, um, those are things that we just over the years were able to sort of just know about each other. Like you mentioned with with Barry Larkin, you just know about it. You just you just feel it. You just have a sense, and you connect on on an extremely uh, deep level. And uh, you know y- you talk about it between innings, but when you're out on that mound and, and you can see each other. And you can feel it. It's it's really a good feeling between a pitcher and a catcher. And I think that's another thing that we, we talk about with our young guys is the idea of of ownership. And when Jamie Moyer, when any pitcher went on the mound, um, he's not going out there alone. And and I know their statistics are their own, but I always felt as a catcher that I'm going out there with him. This is this is a partnership. This is a duo. It's not um, you know it's not him going out there and I'm just going to sit back there suggest some things and. Um, you know, we're going to get through the day. Um, I own his success. I own his failures. Um, that's kind of the way we try to teach it here as well. It's like, hey, you're the guy back there. Your job is to get him through uh, that that outing and and take ownership with him. And, and uh, when you do that, like you mentioned before, whether or not you hit a home run doesn't matter. Uh, you got your guy through the game. You got the W. 
you walk away from that game feeling really, really strong. It is. It's it's such a different position than all the other positions uh, because you are so much involved with that interaction with obviously the who's the most important person on the field every day, our starting pitcher. And if he's on, we got a chance no matter how bad we swing the bats. <laughs> right. uh, and you're a part of that machine. So, uh, you know, and you were always a uh, mild mannered guy. Of course, you want to get hits like everybody else. But I could tell some nights uh, that that getting through and getting a big win w- was really gratifying. You know, it's, it's almost like later in my career when I grew up a little bit, uh, you know, I learned to turn that, I, I learned that I'm not going to hit all the time, you know, even at my, mm-hmm. in some of my best years that I've ever had hitting still really hard and, and you're not going to hit every night and, and you're going to go on a lull for a few games here and there. And I really took to, to the defensive side of the game. It's like, man, that's why I used to laugh at, at Edgar. I'd say, Edgar, how do you do it? You know, how do you just hit? <laughs> yeah. Because hitting so hard and you're not going to, even Edgar Martinez isn't going to get a hit every night. And I said, but at least I have some solace. I can go get my glove at the end of that dugout and go take a hit away from somebody else. And at the end of the game, we win. I turn a big double play to help yep. us win that game. I can be sitting in my lock. I'll be all right tonight. You know, I'm not going to be up all night because tomorrow's a new day and and I contributed tonight. Being a DH, I have no idea how I do it. But you're so involved on a daily basis. Yeah, I, no doubt about it. And and that pride that the guys feel uh, being able to get get through the game, especially when your pitcher doesn't have it. And, you know, we, we talk about being in sync uh, with, with your pitcher. And, and that's a great feeling. But there are a lot of nights you go out there and you know he doesn't have the stuff that he normally does or, or his best pitch is not breaking the way it normally does or it doesn't have the life on the fastball. Uh, being able to work him and get him through five innings or, or six innings, keep your team in the game, those are the things that catchers really, really value. And I think you, you hit on something too, Brett, that's important. And, and you, you mentioned this idea of being mild-mannered. Um, I think it's important for catchers. It, it, it's rare that, that a catcher is, you know, a super highly emotional guy. You, you see a lot of catchers that are a little bit more mellow, as as you might say. But I think that's really, really important because nothing surprises a guy behind the plate. And, and when your pitcher sees that and can read that and feel that, then then he doesn't get too excited one way or the other either. And I think that's also one of the things that catchers, I think, lends itself to managing later in, in, in their careers because, uh, you know, they've seen it all. They've been through it all, whether the, the pitcher had it or not. You know, there was no emotion involved. It was just let's let's go figure out a way. And I think uh, really lends itself to later on in their careers being, being able to, to run a ball club uh, because they've been a part of all that. They've been a part of the emotion of the game. They've been a part of, uh, you know, the defense. They've been a part of the running game. They've been a part of the bunding game. They've been a part of everything. And that's what really helps, I think, those guys transition pretty easily into managing. Very cool. Uh, you've been down in spring training. We're about midway through. The WBC's going on. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's a really cool thing for the game of baseball. Get the eyeballs on it. it a lot of countries involved. Uh, a lot of buzz around the game. When normally we're just having spring training games, the big boys are getting a couple ABs. Now you've got you know, people yelling at the United States for losing one game. Like, what's wrong? <laughs> uh, I kind of mixed on it. I, I think... 
I never played in one. Uh, you know, the only time I played was our Millington, Tennessee yeah. in, in 1989. <laughs> um, but it, it is an honor to play for your country. At the same time, our schedule is so long. It's 162 games. And if you go to the playoffs up to whatever it may be, that's a lot of games. Spring training, we don't count those games because spring training for us, um, especially as veteran players, is getting ready for when the bell rings. So right. it's a couple ABs here. It's maybe a day off here. It's three at bats towards the end of spring training. But to me, that was never a, a real at bat. My at the end of my career, it was basically get ready, get on time before opening mm -hmm. day. Don't get hurt. Take it easy because we got a long season ahead of us. That's a lot of extra games to go into this WBC because now you got emotions involved. You're playing like yeah. it's it's a big time game. You're going to take that. You're going to take that risk. You're going to take that extra base. I'm sure a lot of GMs out there right now are, are just kind of going, please don't get hurt, Mike Trout. You know, yeah. Uh, what do you think of it so far? Like I said, my opinion, good for the game. What's Dan Wilson's thoughts? Yeah, I, I think it's good for the game. I mean, I think when you look at some of the, the like I think you mentioned it, the, the emotion behind some of these games has is, is just been tremendous. And um, I, you know, I, I think these these are what we're watching the WBC are not spring training games. Um, these guys are going uh, all out hundred percent. And, and it's, it's a, it's a different brand of baseball. And I think it's great. And, and you look at some of the lineups, Brad, they're oh, unbelievable. They really unbelievable. are. Yeah. And I, I think it's really, really cool. I, I, I will say the other thing that I think is, is really neat. Uh, we've got about from our organization, not just from our big league team, but from our organization combined, we have probably about 10 guys that have gone into the WBC to play for their particular countries. Uh, and one of the stories that's been pretty unique is we've got a young catcher, Harry Ford, who's 20 years old, came out of the draft out of high school two years ago, was the first pick for the Mariners. Both of his parents were born in England, so he's playing for Great Britain. He's a 20-year-old kid. He's gone deep twice here in Phoenix. Um, in his games, what an incredible experience um, for him uh, to to play against Team USA. I mean, th this lineup uh, that that he got to catch behind and try to beat, and um, I mean, for him, for those kinds of stories, uh, I think that is a tremendous experience that they could not get anywhere else. The other thing I love, Brett, and we were talking about this today, some of the guys uh, in the clubhouse. Uh, how about the Czech Republic team? We've got guys that are electricians, that are firemen yeah. uh, in their real jobs, and they're they're playing ball. They're they're pitching five innings in these games. I mean, you can't help but just just love those kinds of stories that are coming out of the WBC. I mean, the baseball has been great, but some of these other uh, you know uh, heartfelt sort of true life stories are pretty incredible. I agree with you, and and I was talking to my son. We were watching a game. I forget who he was playing for. He goes, Dad, I played against that guy last year. He, yeah. was, in low, he was in low A ball. Yeah. And I thought, just for a second, I thought, wow, how cool is that? You know, when when yeah. when me and you were in low A ball, if we got to play against uh, the starting, you know, the, the USA starting lineup of, of that day, guys oh. that me and you are coming out after our A ball games, we're turning on ESPN to watch the big boys. One day we want to be there. All of a sudden we're playing against him. It would kind of be a surreal, surreal yeah. moment. So I think you're right. I think the real cool part of this WBC, not only from a fan standpoint, and, and it, I think it's really good for the game of baseball um, globally, but the little stories like you're talking about, the feel-good stories, the, the, yeah. 
the things that one day, you know, that that like you said, that guy from the Czech Republic probably is never going to play in the big leagues, but he's going to have a pretty good story uh, years yeah. and years from now about, you know, how he was there and punched out Mike Trout, you know, for yeah. an example. I, I, I yeah. think that's pretty cool. Speaking of, all right, you know, we've covered the WBC, our, our time uh, on Team USA 1989. That was a college. You had something pretty unique. Um, Little League World Series. Every kid, and I remember I was in that tournament. We got to the state finals. I grew up in New Jersey. Uh, didn't make it. I think if we, we'd have qualified at that state final, we still had 72 games to win just to get to Williamsport. <laughs> but you know what it's like to actually get there. Every 10, 11-year-old, 12-year-old baseball player sees Williamsport. That's, that is the cathedral. Um, for you to get there, I think you finished third. Uh, but give me, what's that like as a, how old were you when you went through it? 11 or 12? 12, 12 years old. Yeah. What's uh, that experience like? It's, it's crazy. I mean, you know, you, uh, I, I wish, I wish I had been older and could have remembered more of it. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a cr- incredibly memorable experience, uh, and some things you take away from it, but, but not having more of a, a mature perspective on it would, would have been outstanding, but, uh, it, it just, you know, it was just a group of guys, and and I I'm, I was lucky at a young age to play with a lot of good players. I, I think from this particular team that you're talking about, this little league team, we ended up having something like ten of these guys go on to play Division One baseball. So it, it, it was a good group of players, and I was very fortunate to be around that. Uh, my dad was the coach, um, and uh, we just kept winning. You know, you, you get on a roll, and you know. You see it in the big leagues all the time. You get these young teams that start believing in themselves and they start winning games and you get on a roll and they become dangerous teams. And I felt like that's what we were all 12. We were starting to win. It was great. Um, and then you get to a point where like you turn around, you're in the state championship. Uh, you win that and then you're getting on an airplane. And for some of us, that was the first time we'd been on an airplane at 12 years old. Uh, going into, we went to Bucyrus, Ohio to play the, uh, Midwest regional, uh, we ended up winning that. And then it was off to, uh, Williamsport, Pennsylvania. Um, you know, and it's at that time, if I remember right, there were four teams from the U S four teams that were international teams. Um, and now I think it's much bigger than that. I think it's maybe eight and eight, something along those lines. Uh, but we played, um, team Canada, I believe in the first round we beat them, no, I'm sorry. We played a team, uh, Escondido, California, down in the San Diego area. That's close. That's close to me. Yeah. Uh, that would have been the team you would have had to beat. <laughs> uh, but uh, <laughs> we ended up beating them five to four, I think. Uh, and then we played uh, Tampa, which in essence was the national championship for America because they were the only other team that hadn't lost in the United States uh, in the tournament. And that team had Derek Bell on it. Of all, uh, I mean, it's a star-studded club. Uh, we lost to them. Our tying run got thrown out at home plate in the sixth inning uh, to end the game. So that was a close game. We lost that, uh, and then went on to beat Canada to, to take third in the in the Little League World Series. So it, it was it was just a it was just a tremendous experience from beginning to end. You, you stayed as a whole team and in like a dormitory kind of a barracks situation. Uh, and there were ping pong tables and, and all the teams would kind of, you know, the, the, you get to know some of the guys from the other teams. You're playing ping pong against them and, you know, you're eating in a, in a mess hall with them. It was just a great experience from beginning to end. It was it was very cool. 
I want to know this, though. As a little kid, and obviously, like I said, I, my eye was on Williamsport when I was 11. Like, well, we got a good team. You know, every every yeah. little kid, especially right. every serious little kid that's serious about the game of baseball. Williamsport's the, the top of the mountain. Uh, yep. So for those of you listening, if you don't know Dan Wilson, he's one of the most humble men uh, as far as my teammates go that I've ever met him and him and big Olerud, uh will, will fight for that. But no, nevertheless, Dan, you're a very humble uh, person always have been, but being 12, going to Williamsport, getting on TV, being treated the way you were <laughs> when it ended and you went back home, was it different? Were you kind of like, Oh, I'm a celebrity. no but i will say this one of the things that does hit you as a 12 year old at williamsport is people want your autograph and that's a really strange thing at at 12 uh and then you're right when we go home uh there was a huge parade in town we got on fire trucks it was really a a kind of a uh we're just from a small town in the midwest and it was pretty exciting for everybody there so uh it again uh just a very cool experience. Very lucky to have been a part of something like that. Uh, but grateful, I, I think, at a young age to have something like that. Uh, you know, we talk about Harry Ford and the WPC. It's a similar kind of thing. You you kind of become prepared for that maybe in the future. And, and like I said, a lot of those guys went on to play uh, Division One baseball. And, and uh, you know, you can't help but look back at experiences like that and think, that was an experience that kind of prepared you for for baseball beyond just uh, just high school. Very cool. Uh, University of Minnesota, your uh, first round pick in 1997th overall, went to the Reds. We covered that. We got traded for one another, uh, started playing for Lou. I want to talk about 1995. I was a big, I was, I remember I was in Cincinnati. We were in the playoffs. You guys were in the playoffs. I was always, you know, I came up with that team. So I was always keeping an eye on the Seattle Mariners. That kind of changed the city. We both played in the kingdom. Uh, you were playing there at the time. That's all I'd known, but kind of that's that year, uh, you know, everybody knows it as Edgar's double. We laugh about it uh, because it's played so much in Seattle, but that was a huge series. You beat the Yankees. It's kind of the reason that Safeco field now T-Mobile park is in place today because of what you guys did down the stretch. Um, Tell me how that kind of changed the dynamic. I remember when I came to Seattle, uh, as a young player, you're in that kingdom and we weren't very good and it was dismal and, and wasn't really, there was no buzz around the baseball team. Things changed. I think in 95, not only did you have a real fun team and exciting offense, but, uh, you know, Lou was in town and, and, uh, I don't know, just, just sum it up of how it shifted the, the baseball tone in Seattle in that 95 season. Yeah, it, it, it's such a, a great question. And, and I think, uh, you know, MLB did a, a, a really good uh, documentary, so to speak, um, on the whole 95 season and just the idea that you mentioned of, of, uh, of Safeco Field becoming a reality because of what was happening in 1995. There was a, a public referendum uh, to fund a new baseball stadium in Seattle. Um, it originally failed. Um, and by a very, very slim margin, this was all going on during the, during the season and during the final stretch run in September. Um, once the season ended, there was a, 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 a sort of a re, uh, revote on the new stadium, you know, uh, referendum. It passed the second time 
And, uh, and, and a lot of it was just due to the hype, to the, to the Mariner fever at the time that was just at, at a point where we had made the playoffs for the first time. We, we had beaten the California Angels in a one-game playoff to get there. We had Randy Johnson, who is the ultimate in a, in a one-game playoff guy to have out there. Uh, and, and that's, you know, you, you talk about the, the kingdom being dismal that completely changed the kingdom and the perception of the kingdom because it got so loud in there and the fans were so incredible and such a part of that whole September stretch run, um, that everything just like you mentioned, it just kind of flipped upside down. What, what used to not be a baseball town suddenly had a team that made the playoffs for the first time, beat the Yankees. Uh, Lou Pinella was the manager who was exciting to watch as a manager and exciting to, you know, to play for. And uh, it just everything about Seattle uh, became about baseball. And uh, I, I look back on it now and just consider myself very fortunate to be uh, there during that time. And when you look at some of the players that, that we had in the lineup for a long period of time, um, and, and guys that I got to play with for a long period of time, I just, I think it's, you know, I was just very, very fortunate to be in Seattle during that time when, when baseball turned things around. 96, you made, made the all-star team, um, 2000, you're back in the playoffs. Uh, that was the year before I came back. And I just wanted to, to, you know, everybody that I have on the podcast from, from those early 2000 years, I like to, to, uh, get the feedback Obviously, 2001, uh, we went 116 games. It's yeah, I, I explain it to people like it was kind of like we were on a magic carpet ride. We we, <laughs> we knew something weird was happening. Nobody wanted to mess with it. Uh, I explain it as it, we had a great bunch of players, veteran players, uh, seasoned guys. We had Lou Pinella, who was uh, as long as you're winning every day, he's the easiest guy in the world to play for. <laughs> but you know, it was something different. It, it changed my mind. I was coming from, you know, in 1999, I was with the Atlanta Braves, great team, got to go to the World Series. Uh, and I was from the mindset of you get great players and you steamroll your opponent. Well, that changed for me in 2001 when I witnessed what I witnessed because it wasn't an arrogant team. It was a very confident team. It wasn't we talked the game. It was a glance. Uh, I, I would look at you and you'd look at me and kind of smile like, yeah, Booney, we are going to come back and win again. <laughs> and we kind of all of us just knew. And like I said, it wasn't yeah. an arrogant thing. It was just something special that happened. That particular team, that particular year we put together uh, only to to be kind of, if you want to call it, big time upset uh, by the Yankees. And I still remember that that bus ride after the 2001 playoffs when we went into each series that year, Danny, and correct me if I'm wrong. It was kind of like, well, we're going to win the series. It's just whether they're going to even beat us one game. And I think we went into the postseason. We had Cleveland. We didn't particularly play well, but it was just a matter of finishing the series. Of course, we're going to move on to the second round. I think that year we went to New York and, and we had handled New York pretty well during the regular season. I think it was just a matter of, well, we got to play these games and, and we're going to win and we'll get to the World Series and eventually hoist the trophy. It's just the way it is. And I think we were kind of shell-shocked. I felt that way. Like, I can't believe it ended this way. Run me through your version. Yeah, I think very similarly. I, I You know, um, I, I think 95 was a very different experience. It, it happened late in September. We had this great run. 
but but the thing that that can you know that that sort of linked the two was in September of '95. We went to the ballpark. You showed up every day, knowing, like you mentioned, knowing you were going to win a ball game. You didn't know how it was going to happen. You didn't know who was going to do it. Who was going to be the hero? You just knew it was going to happen, and that's a really good feeling as a player. 2001, like you mentioned, a veteran team. We showed up at the ballpark every day. As veterans, we all knew what our job was. We were all going to go do that job. We had a great bullpen. We had a good starting staff. Our bullpen was, you know, Jeff Nelson for the right-handers, Arthur Rhodes for the left-handers, Sasaki for to close it out. Um, we knew our roles, right, and, and we did the job. And we went to the ballpark every day in 2001 expecting to win a ball game because we had the team guys to do it. Um, I think that to me was – it was one of the, the most fun years because it was just uh, – we just – it wasn't like we blew teams out. Uh, you know, we didn't go in and win 10 nothing every night. It was a lot of four-to-one, you know, dog fights all the way to the end. Uh, we grinded a lot of wins out, um, and it was just because the guys did their jobs every single day and did them very, very well. I think the one thing that I think kind of threw a wrench into it because we were on a roll, you know, let's not forget 2001, September 11th, um, really changed, obviously changed the world. We were all young players. We all had young families. Uh Perspective changes were very different. We were on the road when it happened. So it was kind of a strange situation for all of us. Um, and going into New York to play in the playoffs, I think was, was, it was a very different, different time. And I think it, it was a little disruptive to, to where we were as a ball club and, and as it should be. It was, it was, you know, an incredible tragedy. Uh, and it really changed the way things went for us a little bit. I, I, the, the shocker to me was, some big home runs for the Yankees in that series against us. Uh, and then they, I thought for sure they were going to go to the world series and win it all. And then that was the, the diamondbacks with that, you know, broken bat game seven. Louis Gonzalez. Uh, yeah. It just was, you know, I thought for sure it was scripted that the Yankees were going to take it again, but um, it, it came out differently. Uh, it, so it was just a, it was a, you know, to, to not complete that world series victory uh, still stings a little bit. And I think too, you know, the, the one thing, I, if, if there is an excuse in this in this whole our combined stories, I think about this uh, and you remember this. I mean, it was not only did we have Ichiro mania because it was Ichiro's oh, yeah. first, first year in the league. And and we had a lot more press traveling with us than normal. Now, once we got on that record pace. It was like postseason press for the second half of the season. And and I know you got asked the questions like I did every night. Hey, Booney, you guys going to. uh you're going to break this record. You're going to tie the record, whatever it was, you know, and they started asking this at the all-star break. And you know what my answer is, your answer is probably a little nicer, but mine was what the hell are you asking me that question for? You know, I don't know. We got to win tonight, but yeah. those questions for months. And then finally the night that we won one sixteen, we had a little bit of a mini player celebration. It was kind of cool. Uh, nothing big, but just kind of, Hey, wow, we we did it! What a, you know, what a what a thing! And and it'll we'll probably never see a hundred sixteen win team again in our lifetime. Probably not. Uh, so that was cool. But it, it's almost like, oh, finally, we finally got the record. We don't have to ask answer those questions anymore. Wait a minute, we got to go to the postseason. So it's almost like we had to reboot. That's what that's my excuse I use. I like it. 
<laughs> uh, <laughs> no, you're right though. It was it, the, the streak or, or, you know, the, the, uh, the record did become a thing. Um, and that was, it, it did put a little, put a little bit more weight on things at the end of the year. Um, uh, and, and I, I think it was tough. It, it's again, still stings a little bit that we, that we weren't able to finish the deal in 01. Uh, you retired after the, the, the 2000 and at, in five season, um, Interesting. We're going back to Safeco now. T-Mobile, uh, twenty-two years later for the All-Star Game this summer. It's gonna gonna be uh, a big show, especially now with with the Mariners uh, looking to have a really good team. Uh, last year, getting to the playoffs for the first time in twenty-one years. Touch on Lou a little bit now. If anybody's qualified, you've probably played for Lou as long as anybody that's ever played. Uh, starting with 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 your rookie year in Cincinnati, but a uh, bunch of years with with the Seattle Mariners. I got him for four or five. Well documented. Uh, my favorite man. My favorite skipper of all time. And I and I was blessed to play for some really good skippers. But but Lou just takes the cake. He's just Lou. Uh, I've told a million stories about him. So my I guess my question is from from Danny Wilson, the rookie in Cincinnati. To Lou Pinella, the last year that that you played for him in Seattle, I believe that was O uh, two. Uh, did you see a difference in Lou, or or was it whether we were winning that year or whether we were losing? <laughs> no, I I think Lou changed a lot over the years. Um, I I you know again I I can't thank Lou enough for the opportunity that he gave me in Seattle, um, and and uh, what an incredible. Uh, situation I was able to go into. And like I said, fortunate to be a part of, of the baseball run that we had during, during my time as a player there. Um, I, I would say, you know, obviously Lou is tough on young players. I think that was, was pretty, uh, pretty much a known fact. And, and um, I think some guys look at that and sort of resent that some, some guys look at that and can't handle it. Um, I, I was grateful for it. And, and in, in the end, I was grateful for it and respected him for it. I think, it, it comes from a place of wanting to make players the best player they can actually be. And so um, uh, I am so grateful that, that, uh, you know, he, he pushed me, he, he, he made me become a better player because of, uh, you know, the, the way he managed. And um, as, as you kind of progressed through and, and sort of gained that veteran status, uh, it, it did change. And, and you saw a change in, in how he, uh, you know, treated you and, and how he, uh, you know, let you come to the ballpark. He lets you be you. Um, and you know, I, I, the one thing I loved about him was, uh, you know, you get to playoff time and, and he kind of said, you know, he kind of thought like, Hey, I've prepared these guys all season. These guys are ready to go. And he just kind of let you go. He almost take the foot off the gas a little bit, and just watch you go play. And, and, uh, I, I think, you know, the, the best manager I played for him for nine years, I guess, uh, and just, you know, just, I can't thank him enough for the opportunity, number one, but then also, uh, you know, the development that he had on me as, as a player over the years. Yeah. And, and <laughs> you know how I could say for me, how it progressed as a young player, I remember in Cleveland, uh, no, we were in the kingdom. And this is when I was on the shuttle. I didn't know if I was coming or going. And it, it was the beginning of the season. You know, I had like 30 at bats. But I remember looking up on that board and I was hitting 326. And I think I had a couple hits that night. And uh, 
I come up against Eric Plunk. This is how I remember the story. You know, I got me to two strikes, threw me a high heater, swung at it, strike three. I come back to the dugout. Lou looks at me and goes, son, what are you swinging at, son? I threw the bat at his feet and I said, you bleeping go hit it. You forget how hard it is to hit. And he kind of looked at me and he said, okay. And then after the game, I got a tap on the shoulder, said, Skip wants to see. He sent me down. <laughs> so it went from that to years later. I remember, uh, you know, in that 2001 or 2002, uh, I may have had a, a rough at bat or a rough game. And a similar thing came up. And, and Lou kind of, Booney, what are you doing in that situation? And I turned to him. I said, Lou, you forget how hard it is to hit give it a rest. And he looked at me and he gave me the same reaction. All right, son. But this time it was actually all right. <laughs> but uh, man, what, what a, uh, I, I just, <laughs> there's not enough time. There's not no. enough time for all we've seen. You got one favorite one. You got one favorite Lou or, or two. Uh, many? There's, there's so many. Uh, I will say this. I, I, I always felt like he you had your back and I, I remember, you know, let you know. Let's. There, there were a lot of antics. He, he, he and the umpires didn't get along all the time. <laughs> I remember one night there was a, a, a uh, someone stole second base. It, it, you might have been playing Booney with us at the time. We were in Cleveland, and throw came down, and the guy slid somehow around and got to the bag, and they called him safe. Well, Lou thought that he had gone out of the baseline, so Lou comes out and he's arguing, and before. I even knew what was going on. He's laying down on the infield dirt, showing the umpire how far out of the baseline the guy had gone. He's reaching over to the bag saying he's way out of the baseline. I mean, he was tossed. There was no question after he'd done that. But just to see him out there, you know, having your back as a player on the ground, on the infield dirt, laying there, showing the umpire what he thought. I mean, it was just – it's just – it was amazing. He was just – he was just – he, he wore his heart on his sleeve, and he knew exactly where you stood as a player, which I really respected from him. And the king of the one-liner. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> no kid, <laughs> you got to have thick skin. I tell people this. Yeah. That if Lou respected you as a player and as a man, he'll take a bullet for you. If yeah. he doesn't, good luck to you. You might want to try. You might want to try a different organization. <laughs> <laughs> He was the best. And, you know, I, you talk about the guys that have played for him and, and all of them. I mean, they all have such similar feelings about him and just, uh, you know, just love him to death and, and love the way he managed. Yeah, he was great. Uh, you mentioned you, t- you touched on Jamie Moyer being a guy that you, you caught a lot of games behind. And you mentioned Randy Johnson. I want to. Randy Johnson, you caught him. He punched out 19 in one game. I saw the same thing. My rookie year was 1992 uh, against Nolan Ryan. He punched out, I believe, 19. Didn't go out for the ninth. So I knew uh, that dominant Randy, what it looked like. I remember in 1993 uh, playing behind Randy. And, and I got to play for – I got to play behind a lot of great pitchers in my time. When I went to Atlanta, I played behind Maddox, Smoltz, and Glavin. My opinion, maybe the greatest uh, – one, two, three in the history of the game. Mm-hmm. And to play defense behind that's pretty, pretty fun. But when Randy was on, I've never played defense behind a more dominant 
performance. Uh, you had Randy on one end throwing 100, lefty throwing 100, unheard of, especially at that time. Right. Uh, and you had Moyer, Jamie Moyer, who's on the other end of the spectrum. On a good right. day, on a good day, he's going to hit 84. Uh, just compare and contrast those two and, and yeah. touch, on, touch on the dominance of a Randy when he's on his game. Yeah, the, the comparison's completely different. And um, I get this question a lot, and, and I, and I kind of try to explain it this way. That when a catcher catches Randy Johnson, it's it's a physical challenge. I mean, just to be able to catch the ball. And, and I think, you know, we see guys throw 100 all day long now today in today's game, and players have adjusted to it. Uh, but at the time, he was really, you know, he's throwing anywhere from – seven to 10 miles an hour more than the next guy. He's just on an average. He's just got a great fastball and it moves. And physically just being able to get a glove on it, keep it in front of you. Slider was nasty, sharp, um, just a physical challenge from beginning to end. But there just wasn't much thought that had to go into it. He had two really exceptional pitches. He was going to come at you. He was going to challenge you. He was going to throw the slider to try to punch you out. You as a catcher, there wasn't a ton of thinking to do. It was more just make sure you keep this thing in front of you or, or get a glove on it. Uh, then you think about Jamie Moyer where there was, uh, you know, he, he used to tease me all the time. Like he used to say, you don't even need a glove to go catch me. You know, you could just do it barehanded because didn't throw hard. The changeup was just phenomenal. His command was phenomenal. But you had to think all night long. You had to remember what you did with the hitter, hitter the, the previous time up. Uh, the whole nine yards, you had to remember everything. And, and he was tremendous at that as well. His preparation, both the, both he and Randy, tremendous pre, you know preparation that went into each start. Um, so for a, for a catcher, completely different you know, models. Both could be equally as effective. You know, um, Jamie wouldn't get the strikeouts. He relied much more on his defense, get the ground ball, the double play, um, the weak contact. Um, but both guys could really just control a lineup um, with two completely different styles. And for the catcher, it was two completely different nights behind the plate. Yeah, I played with both of them. I think Randy goes without saying he's one of the greatest, greatest of all, of all time. time. No uh, doubt. But from all the guys I played with and, and the pitchers I played behind, if there's a big game, everything's on the line. Uh, I'll run Jamie Moyer out there anytime because I know if he gets beat, he's not going to get beat because he's scared. He's bringing what he's right. got. Uh, you, you've, you've caught a lot of guys with great stuff. That moment gets a little too big. That stuff isn't quite as great. Uh, Moyer, I knew if it was a big game, you're going to get what Jamie's got. And and it, like I said, if he gets beat, it's not going to be because he's scared or the moment's too big for him. So I, I always had that kind of perception of Jamie Moyer. Yeah, the thing I loved about Jamie, and, and it speaks to that point, um, I heard him talking to somebody one time, and he said, you know, I learned over the years that the bigger the situation for the hitter, the more I could take off the pitch. And I thought, wow, you know, that's that's it, right? Like, here's the hitter gearing up, uh, getting tight, getting ready to, you know, uh, use his big muscles. And here's Jamie just finessing it just a little bit more, you know, to get that weak contact. And uh, I love that. You know, that's that's the game. And and I think Randy, you know, to me, he was he was the ultimate big game pitcher too because his game was intimidation, and he intim he intimidated managers. 
before the game even started because they completely changed their lineup. It was all all right-handed hitters, uh, you know, hardly any lefties. And to to be there in the kingdom in the playoffs against the Yankees when he comes in from the bullpen to throw remember, in relief. I, I remember that. <laughs> and and they're playing Welcome to the Jungle. Uh that's a moment you don't forget. It, it's it's pretty powerful, and uh, you know it's both those guys. I, I you know they they pitched their hearts out. It was it was a blast. And we haven't we even got to Moyer how he 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 talks to the opposing hitters. <laughs> I used to look at him as his teammate. I'd come off the field. I said Moyer, you know, like if you came and talked to me, that's really annoying. Like I, I'm not going to like that. He goes, ha ha, Booney. Why do you think I do it? You know, but I'd see him. I'd see him on a foul. You know, like a. He used to do it uh, against the Oakland A's all the time. It'd be a foul ball. And, and Moyer would go all the way to you to get the ball. And he'd say something to the hitter. And the hitter would look at him like, you, you don't talk to me during the at-bat. Well, Jamie did. And I'd look yeah. at Jamie and say, what would you say to him? He goes, I said, good swing. <laughs> <laughs> we had one night, Booney. And I've told this story a million times. But he, he, long at-bat, we're in Cleveland. Long at-bat, David Justice keeps fouling him off. 3-2, fouling him off on and that exact thing that you just described happens. He starts walking towards me. The umpire gets the ball to throw to him, and he looks at Justice. He says, what do you want? What do you want me to throw? I've thrown everything. What do you want me to throw? He says, give me a fastball. He goes, all right, here comes a fastball. Well, Justice ends, ends up hitting this ball nine miles into the night. <laughs> and as he circles the bases, I asked the – the umpire for the ball, I walk it out to Jamie and I say, Jamie, please don't do that. Again. I mean, this guy just has hit it nine miles in the center field, but, but you're right. Like he, he was, was honest. To, it was, he was, he was willing it's, to live and die that way. Danny, Danny, that we always, Jamie. we always say honesty is the policy. <laughs> <laughs> all right <laughs> all right i asked I, I got a chance to see you the other day it was good catching up in in uh i came over for a day and day in the life of the spring training for the seattle mariners and i kind of looked at you i said steel see reference boon podcast <laughs> listeners there's the steel reference i said what are you doing? You do everything. You're on the air. You said, yeah, Booney, I got 27 times on air this year. I do a little of this. I little of that. I work with the catchers. Um, tell the audience, what is Dan Wilson's? Uh, what's your signet? What, what are you listed as with the Seattle Mariners? Assistant to the general manager? That's a, that's a good question. Uh, you do it, you no. do it all. You do it all. <laughs> I, I just like being around it, and uh, I, it, it helps me. Uh, I love being a part of the game, and, and the game has changed so much, as you know, Booney, and we, we could spend hours talking about that. The game has changed. It's been nice to be around the game to see that change, uh, and I love working with, with young players, and, and uh, you know, we've, we're fortunate in Seattle. I, I live in Seattle with my family. We have two affiliates, one in Everett, Washington, which is about 30 miles north of Seattle, we have our AAA team in in Tacoma, which is about thirty miles south of Tacoma or of, of Seattle. So I get a chance to see two affiliates right there at home, and um, you know, a chance to work with young guys. It's 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 a lot of fun, and then a chance to to be on the broadcast. Uh, I can't thank the Mariners enough for for letting me uh, have an opportunity to do all that, and it's a lot of fun, no doubt. That's pretty cool. Getting to wear a lot of hats. Yeah. If something gets annoying, well, I don't have to do this this week. I get to go on in the booth. When you're done with that, you go back and help young players. Yeah. Um, I'm going to touch on this real quick because it affects the catchers quite a bit. Is the uh, 
the pitch clock. You've seen it now. You've been in spring training for a while. I've seen it a little bit, not as much as you. I'm not on the ground every day. But the day I was there and I went up into the booth and I did a few innings with uh, with Rick Riz, <clears throat> he said, Booney, can you come up, you know, do a couple innings? I said, sure. It turned into four innings because the innings were so fast. And the next thing you know, I'm like, do you need a fifth? Uh, I saw a huge difference in the quickness. I think from a hitter's perspective, and, and obviously it's the big topic now in baseball, so so I definitely want what you've seen so far and mm-hmm. how do you think it's going to pan out. I just have a lot of questions about it. It's, you know, as a second baseman, as a catcher, uh, we know when our pitchers struggle. We know it, when it's time to go in and have a little bit of a conference, slow him down, get his mind off it. Uh, I don't think we can do that anymore. The simplest thing of, getting a sign from the third base coach, uh, being on the same page catching wise. If you're, if you're not locked in, it's like you got to throw it or it's going to be, you know, I, I see a lot of spring training uh, stories. I think Manny Machado was the first one to get a strike call. Yep. On. Yep. And it was all fun and games and it was funny. And we had a, you know, big game, big situation. It's not going to be funny. Uh, your thoughts so far, how it's going to, how it's going to dwarf into the game, morph into the game. Yeah, I, I, you know, obviously MLB really wants to, to, to speed the games up, and, and this is one way they've done it. Uh, having seen it in the minor leagues, I will say, it, you know, again, it has cut the, the, the time of game down quite a bit. Um, and players, by and large, have been able to make the adjustment pretty quickly. Um, at the big league level, that's going to be a little bit different, I think. It's, it's a little bit harder to make that adjustment uh, quickly. Um, but I think we're starting to see it. And I think um, what's going to be difficult, and, and you touched on it, Booney, it's funny that we we have this saying in baseball, it says, you know, the game kind of sped up on them. <laughs> and we're actually speeding the game up on a lot of people. I mean, that's just, that's the way it is. And and one one defense you have as a player, when the game starts to speed up, is to take a step back, take some breaths, slow it down. But you're, to your point, you're not able to do that right now. It's it's the game is moving quickly. Um, and so it's going to take some time, I think, for these guys to make the adjustment. And um, when we see it in regular season games now, they'll, they'll have had some spring training games. Um, but you and I both know, as you mentioned before, spring training is very different than the regular season. And when that bell rings and they're still getting sped up the way they were in spring training, uh, it's, it's going to be an, another – a bit of an adjustment, I think, as the regular season starts. I do think they'll figure it out. Uh, it didn't – I think back in the day, that's how it was. You know, the guys didn't leave the batter's box. They stood there and and uh, they were able to, to to make the adjustments quickly. I think it's just a matter of time for guys to get used to it again. And, and I, I do think, you know, the games have been much shorter. Time of game has been more, you know, 230, 245. Um, so I think that's probably a good thing for fans and fans will enjoy that. Um, so I think the jury's still out, but we'll see what happens. I agree with you. I think it's going to be jury still out there. I think there's going to have to be tweaks made to it. And I think from a fan's perspective, uh, as much as, yeah, it's moving along a little swifter. I think as a result of this, I think you're going to see, and, and I don't, I don't know about astronomically, but I think you're going to see a little bit of a higher percentage of putting the ball in play just because there's that, okay, I'm ready to hit. Um, I think it's going to be a little bit easier for the hitters because uh, I don't know about you, but I didn't take a ton of time, but I also wasn't quick getting into the box. I think that's something as a hitter we can adjust to. I I think of a guy, though, a a, a guy that's very um, 
slow on the mound. Uh, and, and not saying Clayton Kershaw is slow, but here's a guy that's been pitching in the big leagues for 19 years. And he has a way about him, how he prepares, how what he does in between pitches. He's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. And all of a sudden, he's asked to change that. Uh, mm-hmm. Those are the guys I think we're going to see. Uh, I don't know, maybe a hiccup here and there for that veteran player that isn't a quick worker. Yeah, I, I agree. I think two things on that. I think, number one, when you talk about a little bit more contact, when when you combine that with the fact that we're, we're not allowing the, the – you know, the huge shifts again this year. Um, there's there's more holes on the infield too. So I think we're going to see a little bit more uh, offense. Balls are going to get through a little bit more. Um, and I think that's I think that's probably a good thing. It's a little bit more, you know, pure, as, as people would say, of, of a game uh, without the shifts. Um, but to your point about pitchers, I think it, it's not a problem when there's nobody on base. But as soon as you get a base runner, Pitchers tend to slow down a little bit because they need a little bit more time, and and they they need the ability to step off um, from time to time because the, the the signs aren't working or they're not in sync with their catcher. Uh, those are the types of things that are gone. I mean, you, you can step off twice, but after that, uh, you know, you can't do it anymore unless you pick the guy off. So there's some things that are going to take pitchers a while to get used to because it's like you said, it's a, it's just habit for them just to step off. Hey, let's, let's just stop for a minute. Right. I need to step off. Now I'll step back on. Now I'm ready. It's not, it's not that easy anymore. And you have to be careful. Cat, see, I have, I still have a lot of questions. What if something flies in my eye? What if I'm arguing with the umpire? What if he takes his mask off? Does it, does the clock reset? Is he the ultimate judge? I think a lot of these kinks will get worked out uh, the more everybody gets used to it. But uh, it, it's definitely going to be interesting to watch uh, in the infancy stage, I think. Um, on the ground with the Mariners, um, last year was the first time, and, and I can honestly say this, that I remember being on a radio show, I think with Softy, and I said, this team's for real. I said, this is a good team. I've been watching them now all year. Um, and they were a good team. And I think they've gotten better. What I think what I think makes them better, uh, a lot of fans in Seattle this, this last offseason really expected them to go out and spend a lot of money. Uh, they didn't. But I said, you know, what they added was, I, you added Colton Wong at second base. Uh Hernandez from Toronto, you added. I think that's big. You've seen him every day. I haven't. Uh, but I think the big additions that that don't translate fiscally is those young pitchers in that starting rotation having one more year mm-hmm. under their belt. These guys are these guys are better. I think the world that the players know who they are, but I think the world might find out who they are this year. I think that Seattle team's really good. I don't think it's to the point where, oh, we just got to make the playoffs again. I think they should be thinking uh, longer term than that. Like, no, let's win a World Series because that's a talented team. What are you seeing in spring? Give me your outlook for 2023. Very accurate assessment, Booney. Um, I think you're exactly right. And and you and I both know, and this is not a mystery, but but pitching and defense wins championships. That's just how it works uh, in the game. I think the Mariners pitching is phenomenal. I mean, when you look at the starting staff that they're going to throw out there, including those two young guys, um, and the fact that you've got, you know, we picked up Luis Castillo at the end of the year last year. We had him early only for the last couple months. To have him from the beginning of this season all the way through a full season with Robbie Ray, with the two young guys you're talking about, Logan Gilbert and George Kirby, and then Marco Gonzalez, who's as big a competitor as any of them uh, in that fifth spot. You've got a great starting five. 
Without and a our doubt. bullpen has our bullpen has been extremely solid. The defense has been tremendous. There, there was a huge stretch last year where we had the least number of errors in the American League, um, if not the, all of Major League Baseball. So it's a team that's going to pitch, and it's a team that's going to pick up the ball and throw it and, and do a good job of that. So you're starting off with a, with a pretty good formula right there, and they've got some guys in their lineup, obviously, they can hit. And you mentioned Teoscar Hernandez, who was a huge pickup uh, for, for the middle of the lineup for us. Um, I think it's – you're right. This is This is a team that's – expecting to make the playoffs uh, and expecting really to, to go a little bit further. And, and obviously we, we, you know, the, the juggernaut is, is Houston and, and they've been good and, and they've proven that they've been good, you know, year in, year out. Um, and they're in our division. So it's, you know, it's going to be a dogfight. and, and Texas has gotten better and the angels, you know, they've got trout, no Tani. It's the American league West is I think going to be uh, one of the, one of the divisions to really pay attention to this year. I agree with you because Texas and, and Oakland haven't been a factor in, in recent years. All of a sudden, Texas is a factor. Uh, I still yeah. think Oakland's not a factor. Angels are a little bit better. They got to stay healthy. But I look at that Mariners team up and down. And uh, I for me, they're top five in baseball. Uh, they can match up pitching wise with pretty much anybody out there. Yes. Um, like you said, though, the juggernaut is the Houston Astros. And for me, I'm a Mariner at heart, but Astros is still the team to beat. Uh, they're still the world champion. They lost Verlander, obviously huge, but they're so deep in that bullpen. Starting rotation is is phenomenal. And up and down that lineup, the wisdom I see on a daily basis, uh, they're just a different level of thinking ball club. And I think that's headed by an Altuve and a, and a Bregman and a young Tucker. These guys are just wise beyond their years, even though they're they're kind of veteran players now. Yeah. And I've been watching them for a long time. This this kid at short, Pena, uh, they haven't missed oh. a beat. They haven't missed a beat letting Correa go. No, uh, this, kid's a, this kid's a stud. So Astros are still the team to beat. But uh, I think, like you said, for so many years, it's been, oh, can we please make the playoffs in Seattle? I think this year it's when we make the playoffs. And, and no, the World Series should be our goal this year. And, and I think it's a realistic goal if everybody stays healthy. Yeah, no doubt. And I, I heard it, it. This is a really interesting point that Paul Seawald, one of our uh, you know relievers in our bullpen, said a couple of very solid seasons for us. Um, he made the point the other day in an interview that I heard that said, you know, Houston's been a team that has played very well against the Mariners over the years, but they were three pitches away from being swept uh, in that playoff series last year against the Mariners. So, uh, they're chipping away at it. You yeah. know, they, they are close. And I think that's going to be really, really fun uh, to watch how this whole, this whole season plays out. And that first game, uh, and I won't keep you much longer, that first game against Verlander, they had them on the rope, seven, nothing, Danny. Yeah. And I'm going, they're going to beat Houston. Now you come back and you lose that one. Now it's kind of over. You know, and they ended up getting swept. But it, if they would have won that first game, who knows what would have happened. Right. Dan Wilson, awesome. Congratulations on, on everything. Uh, like I said, one of my favorite teammates of all time. Uh, great career. Seattle Mariner Hall of Famer and uh, still with Seattle Mariners wearing a bunch of different hats. Pleasure having you on. Cool catching up. I will see you this summer.
And what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end of the podcast is we kick it back to the voice of the podcast. And that voice is Dan Levy. Dan, that's going to wrap it up for the Boone podcast. My name is Dan Levy, and I'm the technical director, producer and voice of the Boone podcast. The executive producer is Rich Herrera. The digital content for the Boone podcast is provided by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone podcast with neighbors and friends and make sure you subscribe to the Boone podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give it a five star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening.